The Bill Myers Show podcast is sponsored by Clouser Drilling. They've been leading the way in Southern Oregon well drilling for over 50 years. Find out more about them at clouserdrilling.com. Welcome to Wheels Up Wednesday, 13 after 6, 770-5633. Heard all over Southern Oregon. You're happy to have you join in, too, 770-5633. Email bill at billmyershow.com. Heard on 106.3, 1063 HD1, and 106.7 KMED in Jackson County, 99.3 KCMD in Grants Pass and Choke County. And, of course, streamed on KMED.com. Just stream directly from the website. Don't need an app any longer to do that. All right. The political news from last night wasn't even close. Uh, that's okay. Nikki Haley uh, is is still going to be in there, and it's just a flesh wound. But uh, former President Trump, Donald J. Trump, 68.1% of the Michigan primary vote to Nikki Haley's 26.5%. Uh, 3% uncommitted, apparently. A little over a percent for Ron DeSantis and about a half a percent for Chris Christie. So that's about it. And, and it wasn't even close, right? Now, over on the Democratic side, it was a little interesting, a little interesting there. Resident Biden, Dementia Joe at 78.5% and uncommitted at 16%, 16%. One out of six Democratic votes uncommitted. And this was the protest pro-Hamas or, you know, the Arab vote uh, going on in, in Michigan. Michigan uh, demographics have uh, changed a lot since I went to Greenfield Village back in the early 1970s. Yay, immigration. Okay, so there we go. That's going to be a little problem there for uh, for Joe, possibly, in the future. We will see. So that's the latest from the the primaries, and it's on to Super Tuesday next week, in which uh, Nikki Haley will declare more victories. Okay? All right. Now then, I'm going to start off with actually, uh, other than the primary news, a little bit of good news. Actually, th- actually this is a lot of good news, because... One of the things we've been talking about a lot on my show is the the corrosion of the rule of law. Not only respect for the rule of law, but the actual enforcing of law, of the rule of law. What's the point of, you know, telling uh, you know, of regular old Americans just saying, why should I follow the law? It's like, uh, you're Antifa, you get a pass, right? You know, that kind of thing. And we've seen a lot of this going a, a long way. You tick the right button, or the right box, rather, and you're not prosecuted or you're treated more gently. That's why mostly peaceful protests in 2020, burning down cities and people dying. Well, can't do anything about it. You know, uh, uh, gentle, peaceful diversity needs to be able to blow off some steam. You know, that's uh, kind of the way it was treated by the Democrat uh, control grid. And on the other hand, you know, uh, the people who die at the January 6th, the protests there, you know, are actually just the protesters. And we're insurrection and we put everybody in in a D.C. gulag, right? Well, I'm starting to see... A couple of stories that may be indicative of the rule of law being reasserted. In fact, this was, uh, you can read this on Daily Wire, dailywire.com. Judge says feds can't selectively prosecute right wing rioters while ignoring Antifa. And yet, that's exactly the sort of behavior that's been going on within the legal system for quite some time. This was a judge in California. Yeah. California. This uh, judge threw out charges against two far-right political agitators, uh, saying that the federal government engaged in selective prosecution by charging the right-wing rioters, but not the far-left agitators that they were having this fight with. And uh, the people who ended up uh, getting let go, it's um, Robert Rundo and Robert Bowman. They both went to a pro-Donald Trump free speech rally in Berserkly, 
And this was April of 2017. So we're talking seven years ago. And this was a member of the Rise Against Movement, RAM. And I'm not even familiar with this group, but it's a... It's, it's described here uh, by Daily Wire as a far-right white nationalist group that engaged in violence against left-wing groups like Antifa. Now, one of the groups they were fighting was the by any means necessary people. And they would what they would do is that uh, the by any means necessary Antifa types would then go to the right-wing events and challenge them and start fighting. And they would beat them up. They'd shut them down start fights. Antifa, this is the quote from the judge, Antifa and related far-left groups decided that they needed to shut this down. They came prepared for violence, bringing weapons, including pepper spray, fireworks, knives, and homemade bombs, according to Judge uh, Jay Carney of the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California. He wrote this February 28th, just about a week ago. And they used these weapons, the judge said, as well as their bodies against Trump supporters and law enforcement. But after prosecutors filed an emergency motion to appeal, the Ninth Circuit had one of the uh, right-wingers arrested the next day, February 22nd. It's interesting. So they're fighting back, the, the system fighting back and still trying to, uh, to keep the selective prosecution going. But, you know, this is a start, though. This is a start, though, of some progress. It is some actual positive progress here. They're claiming that Robert Rundo is to remain in custody pending resolution of appellant's motion to stay released pending appeal. So they're fighting the judge. The communist justice system is, is still fighting the judge who actually reads the law. Judge Carney objecting to the fact that the federal prosecutors charged only right-wing participants, even though left-wing agitators performed identical contact, uh, conduct or worse at the same event which the prosecutor's own evidence acknowledged. The prosecutors admitted admitted it. They were just right out in the open about it. These are the kind of judges that need to be elected. These are the kind of judges that uh, need to be encouraged. But that's positive. And by the way, you don't want judges that are in the tank for the right wing, too. You want judges that are in the tank for the law and equal application of the law. In a sea of bad news, this one is... You know, it, it's a guardedly optimistic start. Now, this may be good news, you know, depending on your point of view of the uh, of the East Coast. Scientists are now saying that uh, these are NASA-funded scientists. And, you know, by the way, they're funded by NASA. By the way, didn't the... Uh, I did, I'll, I'll just leave NASA out of this one. But, but, you know, if it's funded by NASA, it must be good, right? That's what we've been uh, inculcated to think for a long time. But they're now coming out and saying that the East Coast is sinking. These scientists at Virginia's uh, Tech Earth Observation and Innovation Lab say the land in all sorts of uh, major East Coast cities is sinking. They're sinking. Could impact the lives of millions of people. They estimate at least 867,000 properties, critical infrastructure, including several highways, railways, airports, dams, and levees, are all sinking. And then more of these... More than half of these infrastructures are in uh, major cities like New York. Okay, so New York and Baltimore. All right. Uh, New York and Baltimore are sinking. All right. Uh, you know, some of us out here on the West Coast, we would look at that as uh, progress, maybe urban renewal, especially here in uh, Southwest Oregon. <laughs> we would look at that. Fine. Okay. Um, is this really a tragedy or is it uh, a real estate problem more than anything else? I don't know. It could be divine re- retribution. You know, you have the uh, $355 million fine and then uh, 
And then maybe the higher power says, boom, New York, you're going to sink. Take that. Hey, a fella can dream, can he? All right. They also say that Charleston, South Carolina, is sinking at the rate of about four millimeters a year. That's tiny, but, you know, over 100 years or so, that's a real amount of sinking, apparently. And a lot of the cities downtown built on land that's less than 10 feet above sea level. The area has seen an increase in tidal flooding in recent decades. You know what that's all about? I was talking to uh, Sandy, a booker of mine, uh, a person who uh, helps book uh, guests on my show now and then. I talked with her. She lives in Charleston. And she says that place has gone so woke, tearing down the statues, knocking it all down. She's still uh, 86 from certain uh, restaurants because she wouldn't wear the mask back in the day. You know, Charleston is that kind of town now, right? Well, now it's sinking. I'll have to tell Sandy about this. There could be a little bit of... uh, (laughs) <laughs> a little bit of divine retribution. Now, in all seriousness, though, is it all that big of a deal? I don't know. But uh, I think we'll know that uh, the East Coast is really sinking, and it's truly a big problem. Not when the NASA-funded scientists talk about it, but when uh, Barack and Big Mike sell the mansion. Get back to you on that, okay? It's uh, 22 after 6. This is the Bill Meyer Show, and you're on KMED and KCMD. As the Montana roofing crews travel around Southern Oregon, they like to keep things interesting. You know, we've been doing so many roofs around the valley, there's not many areas where we don't see our past work. Ooh, like that one. Yep, the whole metal package. Roof siding, flashing gutters. Tile job. Oh, yeah, that's a beauty. Luxury home on the hill with tile and copper accents. Shake. That traditional barn looks great with that fading shake roof. That one was tricky. I'm up like uh, three zip. Oh, wait, I didn't know this was a competition. Uh, Composite. Composite. Jinx. Maybe we should just uh, Rochambeau for that one. Uh, Rochambeau? I'm driving. Ty goes to the driver. Okay, well, I'll give you that one. Metal. You're kidding. Destroyed. Four to one. Oh, this isn't fair. i got to keep my eyes on the road, and I can't look around and see what else is going on. While the Fontana Roofing Crew has fun on the way, they're all business when they arrive at your job site. Visit FontanaRoofingServices.com. Millette Construction has been a general contractor for 40 years. For the last 20 years, they've specialized in foundation repair and replacement. If you have sloping floors, cracks in walls, and windows and doors that are hard to open, you have a foundation problem that's only getting worse. At Millette Construction, they not only fix your foundation and level your house, they solve the water problem that's causing the damage. Get on solid ground. Call Millette Construction for a free estimate. Visit MilletteConstruction.com. CCB number 32787. At Father and Son Jewelry, we now have Lashburg Designs. They've revolutionized ring building. That's right, Beck. Our customers don't have to settle for something someone else thinks is a great style. Instead, they choose the material, the design, the engraving, everything. It's their ring. It's amazing. Choose one of 200 rings in our display case, scan the QR code into the tablet, and then watch the magic happen. So many options to customize and make it your own. Come into Father and Son Jewelry for a demonstration. Hi, I'm Randall from Advanced Air, and I'm on 106.7 KMED. 24 after 6, it is Wheels Up Wednesday. Eric Peters will be joining me here in a few minutes, and we're going to have a really great talk. Looks like the EV bloom really is off. We'll dig into that and other transportation news. Also, State Senator Dennis Linthicum, the latest from the uh, the, uh, the state legislature session here. 
And it appears that the the big one at this point, I know we've been talking a lot about uh, campaign finance reform, that somehow they pulled that rabbit out of a hat and decided to shove this into a short session. And the Democrats, and mostly you got to figure this is the Democrats that are scared about it because anything they would get in the way of the unions funneling millions of dollars, especially the teachers' unions and SEIU, uh, millions of dollars to their coffers, anything that might get in the way of that, like a ballot measure which has been proposed, a couple of them floating out there, uh, that must be stopped. That must be stopped because uh, if there's uh, one kind of corruption that has to stay in play, that's the corruption that elects Democrats and controls the state of Oregon. That corruption must be preserved at all costs. I'm only half kidding about that, all right? Bill, you're not fair. The Republicans take bad money to it. Yeah, the Republicans aren't in charge, though, okay? They don't have uh, much power to do a whole lot about it other than walking out. And then the mainstream Republicans didn't want to fight for the walkout, the ability to walk out. But, you know, I... I, I digress. You know, there's, there's only so much. Yeah, we know that uh, the way that the Republicans, many Republicans have been governing in the United States of America is like the Washington Generals. Remember the Washington Generals? If you ever went to a Harlem Go- uh, Globetrotters game, the Washington Generals was the team that was always set up to lose to the Harlem Globetrotters. Well, that's kind of way Republicans have been governing there for a while, except in some red states. All right. All right. Uh, The other part that is going to be talked about, and we'll uh, uh, kick this around rather with uh, Senator Linthicum, is the Measure 110 rollback. This now has a $211 million price tag. This is an article uh, reported in Oregon Live this morning. 110, Measure 110 rather, the the expected vote. It's going to start at, uh, at 5 apparently. $211 million price tag includes money for specialty courts, shovel-ready projects. Yeah, in other words, shoveling money at uh, left-wing groups, essentially, is what that means. You know that. Uh, Intended to address addiction and mental health. Medication to help treat people in jails who suffer from opioid addiction, assuming that we can actually arrest them, right? And training for people working in mental health fields. And $30 million for county-based diversion programs. Now, $30 million sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, you split that up among all the counties, that's kind of a pittance. I was talking about that yesterday with um, State Rep. Dwayne Yunker, and Dwayne Yunker was uh, expressing the belief, and I, I don't doubt him that he doesn't know if he trusts this bill, 4002, because um, the same people that took all the George Soros Corruptico money to get Measure 110 passed, in other words, fool the voters, don't tell them the whole truth about it. Uh, no, this is not a George Soros thing. This is about, you know, we just don't want marijuana users, you know, incarcerated in in high-security prisons, which, of course, doesn't happen. But you remember how they sold that, kind of like how they sold death with dignity, selling legalization of marijuana. It's all, it's all the same thing. It's just uh, you can always look at Soros money, open society money, as uh, being part of this. Well, the same state reps and senators that took that money are the same people that are saying, yep, here's the fix for Measure 110. And Dwayne doesn't trust him. And I have to go with Dwayne on this one. Oh, yeah. No, they're just, um, you know, essentially what the George Soros uh, taking state legislators are doing at this point is that they want to head off a really angry ballot measure that could probably pass, let's say, this fall. People be uh, you know hot and bothered about this enough just to repeal Measure 110. 
There'd probably be enough uh, support polling would indicate this, that Measure 110, they'd be happy to just repeal it and get rid of that. We can't go back to the old days of, of people being punished. We must have the, uh, the, the streets open to, to, to derelicts, and you have to be able to sleep on it and provide, you know, have the stabbing wagon bring the, uh, the free needles. You know, that's essentially whether the, uh, where the Soros people are coming from on this one. Speaking of the stabbing wagon and, the, uh, and more Soros money, another story, this one in the Daily Courier, Grants Pass. Uh, this is something that didn't get uh, mentioned a lot, but uh, Monday, the city of Grants Pass filed their opening briefs in the Supreme Court case on homelessness. Vicki Aldos writes about this, uh, arguing that homeless encampments have proliferated since the lower courts blocked cities in the West from enforcing common laws against camping on public land if they lack vacant shelter beds. And lawyers for Grants Pass said in the brief, encampments have multiplied unchecked throughout the West because generally applicable restrictions on public camping no longer play their critical deterrent role. No kidding. Resulting in spikes of violent crime, drug overdoses, diseases, fires, and hazardous waste. Ah, the, the joys of homeless diversity, right? And it's expected that uh, SCOTUS will rule on this sometime this summer. Edward Johnson of the Portland-based Oregon Law Center, one of the law firms representing the homeless, said in the Monday statement, the core issue before the court is whether cities can punish residents for existing without access to shelter, not whether a city may regulate or prohibit encampments, which is explicitly allowed under the Ninth Circuit's ruling. I would, I would tend to disagree with you, Edward Johnson. It's really about uh, should, the, should derelict, drug-addicted, and raving lunatics be able to punish regular taxpayers. I think that's really what is that, you know, under the guise of the fact that they're raving lunatics and derelict in many cases, and uh, we, we can't do anything about it, that there's an extra special privilege to enforce your form of disorder on the regular people who actually follow the law, conduct themselves responsibly, and pay the bills, most importantly. We'll see what SCOTUS says, if there's some sense, sometime this summer. 631 at KMED KCMD, and I appreciate you waking up on the Bill Myers Show. Hi, this is Megan at Mini Pet Mart. Over the last seven years, Mini Pet Mart and its customers have raised nearly a quarter million dollars for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital to further their mission of finding cures for childhood cancer. We're excited again to be the title sponsor of the St. Jude Country Cares for Kids Radiothon on Q100.3 on Thursday and Friday, February 29th and March 1st. Because we know how precious your children and grandchildren are to you, because they are to us too. So please stop by any mini pet mart or news and smokes, plus M Street Market and the market in Delhi and Grants Pass, and make a donation now through March 1st. We'll put your name on a St. Jude pinup, display it in our store, and match all donations up to $40,000. Mini Pet Mart thanks you for supporting our stores and for supporting St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, where no family ever receives a bill for travel, food, lodging and medical care with all of our help they are finding cures and saving children and they won't stop until no child dies of cancer news sponsored by caveman heating and air it's the climate and we control it call caveman heating and air at 541-476-0009 or cavemanheating.com good morning i'm molly smith with your nbc5 morning news update local nonprofits are trying to increase the available child care services in southern oregon 
The Jackson County Community Recovery Group shared on social media that Southern Oregon is considered a child care desert, with only a small percentage of children having access to adequate care. The Southern Oregon Early Learning Services and other community partners will be hosting information sessions on how to start your own child care business. Sessions will be free to attend, but official dates and times have not been released. And a Medford Elementary School is getting some new playground equipment thanks to the Portland Trailblazers. The Trailblazers Foundation is giving Wilson Elementary a $10,000 grant to purchase equipment for an all-abilities playground. The Medford School District will receive the funds this spring, and it expects to install the new equipment this summer or next school year. And there are only 12 days left in this year's short legislative session, and lawmakers are getting closer to voting on a few important bills. Legislators are expecting to vote on Governor Tina Kotek's housing bill by the end of this week. Ashland Representative Pam Marsh was able to work on part of the governor's housing package. That includes $75 million for a revolving loan fund, which will help fund median income housing. And that's a look at your morning headlines. For NBC5 News, I'm Molly Smith. I hope you have a wonderful Wednesday. Is your business or personal tax return under IRS audit? Tell the IRS First Response Resolution has got it. First Response Resolution in Eagle Point, your local tax resolution experts. Visit firstresponseirs.com and talk to Zach in Eagle Point. He'll defend your rights as a taxpayer. Your smile is the key to your health and confidence. Did you also know that research has concluded people have almost as much fear about finding a new dentist as they do about going to the dentist? Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Johnson, and here at Dental Excellence, we value the confidence and trust our patients have in us. My 20 years of experience in thorough training equals comprehensive dental care. From creating that perfect filling or doing that perfect root canal in my dental microscope to restoring a patient's confidence with implant-supported dentures, we can do it all here here at Dental Excellence. For those who need, I am highly trained and certified in IV sedation and the art of creating a comfortable, relaxed, stress-free environment. Are you looking for friendly, compassionate personal care? Come and join our excellent dental family. Call 541-779-6170 today for a free consultation. Dental Excellence. Dental Excellence. Changing lives one smile at a time. Don't miss the Southern Oregon Polar Plunge for Special Olympics and your chance to step out of your comfort zone to benefit youth and adults with disabilities. Get your team together and jump into an unheated outdoor pool, all for a great cause. It's cold enough. Are you bold enough? Your support provides athletes with access to sports, activities, wellness programs, community, and much more. Join us Saturday, March 2nd. The fun starts at 11 a.m. at the Rogue Valley Country Club in Medford. Register your team, volunteer, or skip the dip and donate at plungeoregon.org. If you're getting ready for a winter road trip, click on the travel report on KMED.com. You'll find the latest road conditions, road cams, and gas prices all over our region. Be prepared with a travel report on KMED.com. Sponsored by Lithia Body and Paint on Bullock Road in Medford. 106.3 KMED. 99.3 KCMD. And this is the Bill Meyer Show. And this is Wheels Up Wednesday. He is Eric Peters, automotive journalist at epautos.com. Eric, welcome back. How the heck you doing there? I'm good, Bill. Hey, I've got a question for you. I'm wondering, if I were to go to Burger King later today and they sold me a Whopper and it said all beef on the box, and I opened it up and I found a 
uh, a soy patty. Do you think I might be able to get them for false advertising? I would think you would be able to have a, a case. I'd have to maybe talk with Handle on the Law or someone else, but he'd probably say, yeah, yeah, I'll bet. So, so the reason that I ask, I wrote an article a couple of days ago uh, about the Porsche Taycan, uh, which, of course, is an electric Porsche, which has a badge on it that says Turbo and Turbo S. And that, of course, is about uh, playing to Porsche's heritage, right? Well, sure. You know, people associate when you hear the word Porsche, even if you're not a Porsche file, just in terms of, of, of general knowledge, people hear Porsche and they think, yeah, 911 Turbo. Yeah. You know, that's sort of a signature thing. And, and, and you know, in a, an automotive context, it's a very specific thing. You know, it's, it's a device that pressurizes the engine to produce more power. Well, EVs don't have that because they don't have engines. They have batteries and motors. So, you know, I thought it was hilarious that Porsche would, would uh, put a turbo badge on its battery-powered device. And by the way, these things are hemorrhaging value. Like, you wouldn't believe, and my article gets into that, They uh, in, in top trim, this thing costs about $200,000, and after four years, it might be worth $100,000. Oh, my gosh, it's lost 100000 but half of its value. That's, a, boy, that's real money, even for someone that has the money to blow on a Porsche, right? Yeah, well, and the interesting thing about it is that other Porsches hold their value. And indeed, if you had a, uh, a 70s era, 911 air-cooled turbo with the flat six, that thing would be worth considerably more than what it sold for new. Porsches generally hold their value because they're Porsches. Yeah. The problem with the device that has a Porsche name on it is it's just another device. So its only real value is its newness, kind of like a cell phone. Like how much do you suppose a five-year-old iPhone is worth? Uh, not that for- not that much in the grand scheme of things. A couple hundred bucks, yeah, I mean, maybe, it right? It sells for a lot when it's new because, hey, it's the latest thing. Look, my device is newer than your device, and my device can do this, and your, your device can't. But, of course, six months later, another device comes out that can do something yours can't, and boom, your device is all of a sudden old. It has no intrinsic value, unlike an air-cooled rear-engine Porsche 911 Turbo. Yeah, one of the frauds, though, that is still being used to push the EV, you know, it, well, it's, it's like trying to push a wet piece of spaghetti, you know, essentially what they're they're trying to do, you know, with this uh, this whole with the EV. bayonet. Yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're trying, yeah, you're you're going to, yeah, you will have the uh, the EV and you will be happy. You will, but oh, by the way, you won't own it. It'll be uh, transportation yep. as a service. We've also uh, talked about that. But uh, I, I even heard that. Uh, well, China is now going to be bringing out and hoping hoping to get some. I forget what the name of it is. Like uh, electric vehicle, you know, new electric vehicle, uh, less uh, at less cost, and they're going to mm-hmm. get it into the United States of America. But even still, it's supposed to be a low cost EV. But they're they're going around there and talking about how fast it accelerates. That's mm-hmm. what they're still selling it that way. And first off, that that would be fine. It can accelerate fast. How far can it go, though? And right. the and the other aspect about this, and you've talked about this on epianos.com, is that where can you go out there and use this ridiculous acceleration and speed without mm-hmm. being uh, popped for uh, for tickets everywhere? Why would they well, even sell that? that? These same nags who will constantly lecture us about how unsafe it is to speed. You know, we get that all the time. Yeah, uh, cars ought to be speed limited. In fact, they urge, and yet at the same time. They say nothing about these EVs, which tout how quick they are and how fast they are. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, boy, talk about the push me pull you line of thinking. You know, going out there in the in, in the culture, it's just okay, all right. And if you were to actually use that EV and uh, and go to that corner sort of speed, the red light camera in town will uh, will certainly take note of it. Be real, well, it's, right? It's, it's very much of a piece with free speech vis-a-vis the left, meaning that the left favors it. Uh, as long as it's advantageous to favor it. And as soon as the left acquired power, it no longer cared very much about free speech. Same with the EVs and the quickness. If they manage to succeed 
in getting everybody into an EV, that is everybody who can still afford to drive or mm-hmm. buy one of these things, then all of a sudden speed will become a big issue. And all of a sudden they'll uh, return to talking about how uh, they ought to have speed limiters on them. And then what's the point of owning your ludicrous speed Tesla that you can't drive any faster than an 86 Yugo? Yeah. Speaking of Tesla, I'm kind of curious. What is the uh, resale of Teslas? Have you kept an eye on that, given the fact that the Tesla or the uh, Porsche, the Turbo, the Turbo S, <laughs> which has no turbo Yeah, in well, it. they've cratered. I mean, that was one of the reasons uh, that Hertz dumped uh, Tesla. They, were, they, they lost a lot of money on those vehicles that they had initially bought uh, to have in their rental fleet. The other problem was, of course, the expense of keeping them and fixing them and the fact that most people just didn't want them because of all the hassles that we've talked about. But, yeah, they, they depreciate very quickly. To, you know, to understand this, imagine a seven- or eight-year-old regular car and a seven-year-old EV both bought at the same time. Uh, seven years, let's say it has 80,000 miles on it. It's still essentially almost a new car unless it's been sorely abused by whoever bought it. Uh, it's something that you could buy and realistically expect to drive for at least probably the next seven or eight years or without anything major going wrong with it. You buy an EV that's seven or eight years old, and it's very likely you're going to be looking at having to buy a new battery within the next couple of years, if not right away. And that's why they depreciate so quickly. Yeah, and it's different than, let's say, well, even my uh, 14, how old is my Chrysler? My Chrysler's 14 years old, right? Mm-hmm. 14 years old. I paid $14,000 for it at the time, back in 2010. And I could still sell that, even though it took a lot of depreciation in the early days of it, because yep. you know, it was a Chrysler, and they don't have, they didn't hold the same kind of value. I could still sell that for about thirty five hundred, four thousand bucks. Looking at what sure. is going on, and I put more than a hundred thousand miles on it for crying out loud. Sure, I've gotten a lot yeah, of use out of it. I bought my O2 Nissan um, used about fifteen years ago, and I paid I think about seventy seven hundred bucks for it. I could probably sell it right now for forty five hundred to five thousand dollars. Yeah, people... and why would I? Because it's it's a perfectly fine truck, and you know I'm, I'm just putting a new radiator radiator in it. In fact. Um, it's a vehicle that I can probably drive for another 10 years if I want to, and, and, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Eric Peters with me this morning, Eric Peters at epautos.com. If you wanted to ask a question or just comment on something here we're talking about, maybe you have a vehicle you wanted to ask a question about, seven seven zero five six three three. I wanted to share an email question for you this morning, mm-hmm. Eric. This is from Doug Dean. And Doug okay. says, hey, Bill, we uh, look forward to every Eric Peters segment as a guy who raised his four kids by sharing the experience of rebuilding several classic 1950s and 1960s vintage cars, what is Eric's outlook for the future of hot rodding as a hobby? Along with new stringent automotive regulations and considering the complex compatibility issues of newer engines, sophisticated electronics, uh, swapping newer engines into older cars or vice versa, if that option is even possible... Does Eric see any reasonable workarounds in the uh, in the future? Uh, will this new low displacement over turboed high horsepower craze, which has infected Detroit, kill the backyard mechanic? And he was kind of looking for your comment on this. Yeah, well, it's kind of bleak. You know, if you've been to an old car show, and this this is kind of a parallel thing, you'll see that uh, most of the, the the people there are also old. Hmm. Um, and there's a reason for that. You know, these cars now that, that the caller is, or the, the, the questioner is, is talking about, they're, they're 50- and 60-year-old cars. So somebody in their 20s today has no frame of reference for those cars, probably has never been in one, let alone worked on one. And the other thing is, even if they wanted to, it's not like when you and I were in high school. These things are now high-dollar collectible cars, uh, you know, even on the low end. So it's a forbidding um, cost of entry to get into it. So 
Uh, I don't know. I, it seems to have become much more of a niche, but it might become more popular uh, given the way things are going, given that the only way you're going to probably be able to drive going forward is to kind of do as the Cubans have done and get yourself something old and keep it going. The key thing here is to stay away from the popular models, the Mustangs, the Camaros, the ones everybody knows about, the Chevelles, uh, Trans Ams like mine. They are too expensive, but you can go out and find yourself, say, an old Dodge Dart. Just don't look for a GTS. Just look for yeah. you know, a six-cylinder Dart or something like that or a Nova or some old Japanese car from the 70s, something like a Honda Civic, something like that. Uh, they're very affordable still, and they're they're very accessible, you know, in terms of, of figuring out how to work on them and keep them going. I think that's really that's a really interesting uh, distinction that you make here. And I was uh, thinking about it, not going for necessarily the most popular ones. Uh, I had a um, let's see, when I was a kid, I had a for a short time. I loved that car. It was a 1970 first year uh, Chevy Monte Carlo. And mm-hmm. I don't think that now the Chevelle Malibus are very collectible. We know about that, you know, yep. Chevelles, right? But yep. the Malibu, which but the uh, Monte Carlo, which was sort of a, a stable made at that point, popular car. But I don't think it has the same collectability that kind of uh, cachet today. No, right? and there are a lot of them out there, you know, and they've made them all the way up into the eighties. You, you those those mid-sized personal luxury coupes, the Monte Carlo, the Grand Prix, um, uh, the Buick Regal, not the the GNX and and the GN, just the standard Regal models like that. Mm-hmm. V8s, rear wheel drive. Uh, you know, very, very modular, and that you can easily replace the drivetrains in those things. And that brings up another point I'd almost forgotten about that I wanted to make. With these new cars, very difficult to do any significant swapping with them because everything is integrated. You take out one component, you can't just put something else in that mechanically fits. It has to electronically mesh with the rest of those systems, and they make it so that that's almost impossible. But you're looking at that sweet spot effect. I think you talked about uh, up to the mid to late 90s for vehicles that are are more uh, buildable and or tunable. And maybe, you know, when we talk about the, all right, they're not going to have the hot rods, maybe not the hot rods as as I knew it, because I know that even when I was growing up, there was a um, someone who was uh, alive when, let's say, the, the old Thunderbird uh, first came out you know, or the old uh, Corvette. You know, that's not necessarily as popular now because those people have aged out. Well, the regular yep. muscle cars, same sort of thing as uh, older boomers end up aging out. Same thing will happen, you know, those sort of things. But what about when uh, when people were kids in the 1980s or 90s and they would have exactly. you know, a Honda CRX or whatever it might be in Civic and they tune that and sure. uh, and they would have fun. Maybe we'll start seeing that as a more collectible uh, thing. Uh, oh, I think we will. In fact, uh, if anybody's listening to this and contemplating it, uh, I, I would be very much um, looking into finding myself something like a, an Acura Integra. Remember mm-hmm. those with that yeah. brilliant VTEC engine? Uh, those are great cars. And right now, you know, they're still they're still available for not that much money. But as as awareness begins to dawn that they're never going to make cars like that again, the prices for those things are going to start going up too. What about that uh, Honda engine that was in the S two thousand? I, I don't. I, I don't. I'm yeah, not yeah. Real, it was. No. It was one of their VTEC engines with like oh. a 10,000 RPM redline. Yeah, that thing would just scream, right? And mm-hmm. and and I guess that is still probably affordable in comparison to you know maybe you know more classic cars. You can still get those. well. It's that's more desirable. You know, if you're looking just to get in on you know get in on the low end, why not just get a an Integra coupe? It's essentially mm-hmm. the same thing, and then make it into your. LS2000. Okay, very good. I'm talking with Eric Peters once again, epautos.com, and happy to take your calls and comments, and we're just going to hit them live here, Eric. All right, let's go to line two. Okay. Hi, KBD, KCMD. You're with Eric. Who's this? Uh, this is uh, Pat. Hey, Pat, what's on your mind? 
Oh, I got a horror story for you. Uh, back in high school, went out with a gal that had a 1969 DZ Camaro, blue, white, deck stripes, 302, oh, mechanical oh lifter, Muncie, Muncie Rock Crusher, Data 411 rear end, offered to sell me that car for 6500 $6, bucks, And I, I back then, that might as well have been a million dollars. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and, you tur- and you kick yourself every day, right? I do. Some of those cars are going for three uh, quarters. Uh, okay, hold on. What did you say, Eric? And then I, I want to hear his response there. Go ahead. What did you oh, say? I was going to say I have a very similar story. It was right after I got out of college. Uh, it, it was early 90s, and I stumbled upon a 74 Super Duty 455 Trans Am Buccaneer Red four-speed car. It was rough. It had rust, but it was all there. All its original drivetrain was there. And if I'd only had 5400 bucks back in that day, I could now own one of the most desirable and collectible Pontiac muscle cars ever. Those things go for $100,000 plus oh, these days. Oh, man. What about that Camaro that you were talking about, Caller? How much do they go for now, you said? Oh, I've, I've seen them go for half a million bucks. Oh, my. Yep. Oh. Yeah, he's talking about the very first Z28, uh, very low production. It was before Z28 became something that everybody knows. All right. Feel your pain. Feel your pain. But, boy, great story. Thanks for checking in here, okay? It's Eric Peters, epautos.com, on the show this morning. Hi, who's this? Good morning. This is my name, Dave. A friend of mine is trading a, a mining claim for a 2002 V8 uh, Tahoe 45 with... Uh, a 2002, a 2002 uh, Tahoe, you said? Your phone's a little crunchy. Yeah, it's a 2002 Tahoe four-wheel drive. Hmm. Is that a good... Uh, for telling. Is that a good swap? A 2002 Tahoe? I, I don't know much about that particular for model, a, Eric. For a placer gold you, Yeah, they're very solid. You know, even if there's something that needs repairing, again, it, it's at that... It was made at the point when those vehicles were still repairable in, in, in not just the mechanical, physical sense, but also the economic sense. You know, worst-case scenario, if he has to put an engine in it, you can buy a brand-new GM crate engine for that thing. Last time I checked, for about 3000 bucks ish Boy, that's not bad at all, really. It, it's not difficult to install an engine in one of those things either. All right. Yeah, you can practically stand in the uh, engine compartment. All right, Dave, sounds like it was a good deal. Good swap for the mining claim. You can use that. Let me go to line four. Hi, you're on with Eric Peters. Good morning. Good, good morning, Bill and Eric. How are you guys doing today? Doing fine. Who's good. this? This is Jim in Medford. Jim, uh, pleasure. Go uh, ahead. Yeah, I was also an auto mechanic and enjoyed it for years and years for Chevrolet and stuff here in, in the Valley. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, have you heard, Eric, this is Eric. I just wanted to ask you, Eric, have you heard anything about the extension of gasoline in the future? Well, what I think they're going to do, inevitably, I think they're going to have to do it. I actually wrote about this the other day. If they want to maintain this EV push, they're going to have to figure out a way to push uh, things, the vehicles that aren't EVs, off the road. And one way that they could do that is by... Uh, figuring out a way to restrict the availability of gasoline or just make it so prohibitively expensive that most people can't afford it anymore so as to make it seem as though the EV is the preferable alternative. Does, oh, that, does, that, make, does that make sense to you? Well, yeah, it makes sense. I just, I was just wondering because I'm now retired, of course, and, uh, and I don't hear much of anything in what's going on in the, you know, in the auto field too much like I used to, but 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, you know the state of Oregon. Supply. Yeah, the state of There's Oregon, Jim. Of supply. The, the question is that whether they're going to attempt to artificially restrict it. You know, it worries me. I have been giving thought, and I'm sure I'm going to kick myself if I don't do it, uh, to getting myself an older mechanically injected diesel because in a in a pinch, in a worst case type scenario, it's possible to actually make your own you know vegetable oil or whatever. Any kind of oil just about can be burned in an old mechanical injection diesel. It's a lot harder to refine gasoline. All right, Jim, I appreciate the call, though. Yeah, I know that uh, state of Oregon, if they could, if they could find a way to ban uh, ban gasoline powered cars, they would. Now, you're not going to be allowed to buy them, technically. I don't think they've changed anything that uh, we're not supposed to be able to buy uh, internal combustion cars within the well, next few. still won't, you know. And that that brings up what they're going to do next. And what I you know, I think it's almost obvious, isn't it? They're going to say something like, "Well, in the interests of, of staving off climate change, we're going to impose a five dollar per gallon climate change or carbon tax on each gallon of gas." Right, that kind of thing. And they do it through the regulatory, uh, yep, the regulatory state. Six fifty three with Eric Peters. A lot of calls for you this morning, Eric. We're always happy to get him on. Have you talk to him? Hi, who's this? Good morning. Yeah, good morning. This is Terry. Hi, Terry. Hi there. Hey, I got a quick question. Start off topic, but not really. I'm doing a project, an 85 Suburban, putting an LS3 engine in it, and mm-hmm. people tell me on certain things, don't use a certain type of fuel line because of how gas is nowadays. What would be, should I use metal, rubber, plastic? What do you think is the best um, fuel lines to use in there? Oh, well, generally speaking, you know, most of the lines are going to be stainless steel anyway. That's the first thing. Uh, or at least, or, wait, let me back up and say, this: the, the original steel lines, if the vehicle was made before the widespread use of any gas that has ethanol in it, I would consider replacing the steel hard lines, the ones that long, run along the frame with stainless. I've done that with my classic okay. Firebird because the steel lines will rust because of the water that's in the ethanol. Uh, as far as the rubber fuel lines, just make sure you use modern uh, modern rubber lines that are designed to handle ethanol, and that's pretty much everything. If you went to any Napa or other auto parts store, whatever they're going to have in inventory is designed to handle uh, gas that's got a high alcohol content in it. You good with okay, that? Well, and some, yeah, and well, and some people say that, and I guess it doesn't do that anymore, but you use the old rubber lines, and the, the gas smell would just seep through those old rubber lines. And I guess they're not like that anymore. But I also was looking at these, these push-in fittings on this plastic braided piping that looked yeah. pretty cool, too. And I was just, yeah, I just wondered if any of those were good. Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with them. They're, you know, they're not as prone to bursting potentially, and that brings up something else that I wanted to mention that's important. You know, when you replace rubber fuel lines with a, with a modern vehicle that's fuel injected, be sure that you use line that's designed for a fuel injection system because of the pressure issue. If you use just old style fuel lines that were designed for carbureted vehicles, they can burst, and you know, you can have a fire, and that's bad. As someone who was uh, very happy to rebuild old, uh, do you remember Volkswagen 411s and 412s? Sure. I used to buy that when I was a young DJ up in Seattle in the uh, mid-80s. I would buy those because they were not very popular, and they would Mm -hmm. usually be dead because there was a problem with the fuel injection. But one of the first things I always did, you replaced all the hoses, because I can't tell you how many of those old Volkswagens back then ended up uh, catching on fire on the freeway, and you'd see them burned out hulks on the side when the (laughs) fuel injection, because the the hoses would start going bad over the years. Yep. Yeah. Yep, and back in those days, you know, that early Bosch fuel injection system, you know, VW, I think, was probably the first manufacturer to uh, to offer a mass-marketed, you know, low-cost vehicle that had electronic fuel injection. And it worked really well. 
except for it did. Uh, I had a '69. Yeah, yeah, you did one. Was it like a fastback, squareback, something I, like I had that? A fastback. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember them uh, in that. And <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. I know you would appreciate this, but I would buy the 411, 412 because nobody wanted them. And I thought, okay, it's kind of cool. You know, you get them for like two, three hundred bucks, and they would always yep. be dead. And I would, uh, I told them, wait, I told them home. And what always ended up happening is that you know how those old Bosch fuel injection things, they had a big ground tree in the middle of the engine block yep. that uh, that you would put all of the electrical connections for the fuel injectors that would run the uh, that run the engine to put the fuel in. And what would happen is that over the years, grease and gunk would go onto that area, and all you had to do was just disconnect it, clean it all up, and it would run just like that. Yep. Every time. Yep. <laughs> I never... Yep. That was that was my thing. So I'd uh, I'd, I'd tow it away for two three hundred bucks. Uh, put a few hours of work in it, and then resell it for eight or nine. You know, so it worked out yep. pretty well. Yep. Yeah. Back in those days, you know, because of the fact that it was such an unusual vehicle, so many people did buy them and use standard fuel hoses that weren't designed for the higher pressure of the fuel injection. That's right. But it's really not an issue today because all vehicles have been fuel injected since what the mid late eighties now at this point. So it's. 40 years now. All right. Now, we talked a little bit last week about the Cadillac Escalade. You have a review mm-hmm. of that up right now on uh, epautos.com. But I wanted to give a little taste of what's coming next week. And mm-hmm. we have one of these vehicles at the radio station, our engineering vehicle is a 2002 uh, a Toyota 4Runner. And this mm-hmm. is kind of like the – it's not the end of the line, but they're making a big change on it. What's the story? Oh, yeah. Well, the big change is the one that we've talked about repeatedly. And if you can believe it, uh, very soon it's going to be the case that not a single vehicle in Toyota's model lineup uh, will have a V6 or even offer a V6. Really? Right now, one of the few that still does is the 4Runner. It comes standard with it. Uh, And as people who know the vehicle know, uh, it's based on the Tacoma pickup. Um, And unfortunately, for people who like the 4Runner, the Tacoma has just been updated and it no longer even offers a V6 or a manual transmission. It comes only with a turbo 4 now, and we all know the reason why. Well, the 24 4Runner soldiers on for one more year, but next year for the 25 model year, very likely it's going to be updated, and it is going to get essentially the same drivetrain that's in the current 24 Tacoma, hmm. which means it's going to come with a turbo 4 henceforth. Now, I know they've done a great job on turbocharging these uh, these four-cylinders you know, good good low-end torque and and good power. I mean, they get way more power out of a four-cylinder than a lot of times you get out of a six-cylinder or a V8, you know, just a number of years ago. Well, comparable. Yeah, comparable. comparable. Yeah. The, the, the highest output version of the, the new four that's in the Tacoma, I think, makes 278 horsepower. The V6 in the, in the current four-runner makes 270. So the power output isn't the issue. The issue is the expense. You know, the new Tacoma is, I think it's roughly about $4,000 more expensive to mm. start now. Yeah. And the reason for that is obvious. You know, the engine has got a turbo and all the peripherals and all these other things that make a vehicle more expensive. So you're going to pay more for it, and then potentially you're going to pay more for it down the road. One of the reasons that the current 4Runner is so popular, notwithstanding that the current thing is essentially the same as the 2010 model, so it's a 14-year-old vehicle, is because it's just known to be completely rock-solid reliable. This is a 20-year vehicle, easily. They're bulletproof yeah. vehicles. They're bulletproof. Yes. And, 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 and there's a good... to put a turbo in it. Yep. And and the thing is now... You're probably going to have to put a turbo in this, this new one that's coming out next oh, year. Oh, boy. Has there been a long-term study with you and other members of the automotive press in which they've looked at what's been going on with the uh, reduction in engine size? Has there mm-hmm. been a reduction in durability? Because this is something that... Uh, we just assumed that, hey, if you're trying to put that much stress on a four-cylinder, yeah. you're going to blow these things out more quickly than a six-cylinder yeah. or a V8 that's loafing along to do the same amount of power. Well, yeah, it's, 
kind of like with the vaccines. The evidence is leaking out. Oh. Yeah. You know, if you, if you, you know, you and I, I think, have talked about some of the YouTube mechanics who have dissected some of these very small, highly turbocharged engines and shown what the bottom end looks like uh, after 50 or 60,000 miles. But this is all still relatively new. This trend didn't begin to really get going uh, until about, what, six, six-ish years ago was when all of a sudden this really kind of mm-hmm. got a push, yeah. and now it's become common. So it's going to take about 10 years uh, in service on the road uh, for it to become really evident, you know, what's what, what the consequences of all this are going to be. I'm trying to think of what was it that I saw one of those uh, guys that uh, that tears apart the engines. Oh, gosh. Um it was a, I think it was the one point something liter. Yeah, the, in the, 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 yeah, the one point the one point four liter Chevy engine. I think yeah. that's what they were talking mm-hmm. about, and how it, it was like a fifty or sixty thousand mile truck that it was in, yep. and it was just destroyed. It was just yep. he, he said it, it, just talking about how difficult it was to keep that uh, keep that together, and it was of course super super turbocharged, and I think it was yeah. a one point four three cylinder, wasn't it? Three cylinders. Yeah, you know, uh-huh. in order for these engines, like for example, in, in the current Toyota, and you know, I have nothing but love for Toyota. I think they they make excellent vehicles. They they're very diligent about their engineering, but nonetheless. Mm-hmm. In order to make this little, uh, I think it's a 2.4 liter engine, make as much power as a 4 liter V6, it has to be heavily turbocharged. So if you're going to drive the vehicle and you expect it to perform in the same way that the V6 performed, you're going to be constantly using that boost. In other words, Mm -hmm. the engine's going to constantly be under pressure. And it's almost axiomatic that putting an engine under a lot of pressure results in more rapid wear and tear and a shorter engine life. And then I look at our 2002 Forerunner, the engineering vehicle that has, you know, Lots of hard hard mileage. You know, when we're doing that, it's hard mm-hmm. mileage. And the thing is, that's a, I think it's a 3.4, a 3.4 V6 on that thing. Not a lot of power. It's not an incredibly powerful vehicle, but it just works and has continued yep. to work. And I'm, and I'm hoping that uh, Toyota doesn't end up uh, going down the turbocharged for hell that uh, so many of the other manufacturers have been doing. Well, I think they will. And this brings up something that I wanted to mention before we conclude today, which is you may have heard that in Europe they're, they're starting to uh, impose regulations and even laws that will effectively make it impossible to keep vehicles that are over, say, 15 years uh, by uh, declaring them to be obsolete and making it impossible to get parts to oh. keep them going. Oh, uh, the, really... the EU's talking about that, huh? Yes. I'm going to be writing about that, but it's just a, it's something I wanted to mention in, in that today, people listening to the show who have an older vehicle, it might behoove them, it's do, I'm doing this myself, uh, to stock up on necessary maintenance parts for whatever vehicle you've got for just in case so you can ride yeah. out whatever might be coming. Yeah, if they want to turn us into Cuba, well, you better get some... Uh... <laughs> you better get some parts yeah. and stock it up, okay? Yep. But, but that's always a good idea to do anyway, all right? Hey, Eric, uh, one more call, and then we'll cut you loose mm-hmm. back to your journalism, okay? Let me go to okay. line two, and you are on with Eric Peters. Hi, who's this, and what's your question? Morning, guys. Jeff and Selma. I just Hi. wanted to pass along. You know, back I went to Chrysler Training School up in Detroit, and one day the one lab coat guy comes in and talks to the head of the class, and they all get giddy and laughing. They, had, they were developing the 2-2. And what his mm-hmm. report was that made them all giddy was that they had it on the dyno for 45 hours, and it was still going at wide open mm-hmm. throttle. Now, the 2.2, two, the 2.2, mm-hmm. you're saying, right? Yeah. Okay. Back in the 80s. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, but my, my uh, late ex-father-in-law, he had two 70-and-a-half Trans Am Ram Air 3 400 cars. Oh, boy. And his quote was, "There's no for, when it comes to horsepower, there's no substitute for cubic inches. 
Yeah. Well, there's no replacement for displacement. I yep. think rhymes a little better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Good stuff, Phil. Now, the, the, now the two point two. Now, was that is that the same two point two that I even have in my twenty ten Chrysler that was just changed, or was that? Uh, is, is, no, that, I, I can't. I remember the engine he's talking about. I think it was in the Omni and a lot of the other little front drive boxes that Chrysler oh. sold back in that era. I, I can't remember whether that was co-developed with Mitsubishi or not. Though you remember when there was that overlap period. Yeah, Jeff, do you remember that? Uh, but, but I'm sorry, I was uh, <laughs> onto my earbuds here. Um, the oh, I was going to say, I can't remember like exactly, the, but uh, I remember minivan. in the 80s, Chrysler, okay. Chrysler had, had partnered with Mitsubishi, and they were co-developing various things. And I can't remember whether that was fundamentally a Mitsubishi design or a Chrysler design. <laughs> yeah, hard to say. Uh, it would have been probably a Mitsubishi. The class I was attending was Makuni 02 Feedback at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Hey, Jeff, thanks for letting us know, okay? All right. <laughs> All right. All right. And I know that Chrysler also had, I think they there were two types of four-cylinders even back when I bought my Chrysler. There was a yeah. world engine, I think they called it, the world engine. Yep. Maybe that's what I'm yep. thinking of, you know, that sort of thing. And one of them was better than the other, but my memory fails. I can't recall which it was. Okay. Well, you know, the, the one that's working for me is the one that's paid for. I'm good with yep. it, okay? All yep. right. Yep. <laughs> Eric Peters, epautos.com, great site. Join in there, support it, and uh, there's a lot to read there, a lot to go through. And we'll talk more and hear the Forerunner uh, review for next week, okay? We'll look, you see you then. Thanks, Eric. Five minutes after seven, this is KMED, KMED HD1, Eagle Point, Medford, KCMD, Grants Pass. Choosing a company to drill your well is a major decision. You have a lot to consider. Experience, reputation, equipment, price, and most importantly, the finished project. Clouser Drilling stands behind their work and guarantees materials and workmanship. Quality and integrity has helped Clouser Drilling grow to be one of the largest drilling companies in the state. They provide the best overall value and make sure the job is done right. Competent and capable, that's Clouser Drilling. Call today for a free written estimate, 476-7795. Visit clouserdrilling.com. American Rancher Garage is your premier auto care provider, serving Medford, Central Point, and the Rogue Valley, providing nothing less than the highest quality standard of professionalism on every single service and repair. Call today. Appointments are available for oil change to engine change. Get the peace of mind you deserve at American Rancher Garage. On Biddle, across from Elmers, 499-6673, 499-6673. American Rancher Garage. We stand behind every job we do with service you can trust. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down. Nobody's taking away anybody's gun. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15. I certainly hope so. It's time we do the same. Banned assault weapons. Now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles. Bingo. You're right if you have an assault weapon. The fact of the matter is they should be illegal, period. This year's election comes with a lot of uncertainty. Politicians want to take your firearms. This message paid for by Good Guys Guns. Stephen Westfall Roofing, Inc., specializing in new roof construction and re-roofing. Our mission is to make sure each and every one of our clients can sleep at night, knowing they have a roof over their head that lasts and will keep them protected. 601-9108, CCB number 230804. If you have an Alexa device, you can listen to great news and talk anytime by first asking Alexa, enable KMED. After enabling the skill, you can listen to the most popular talk personalities like Bill Meyer and Lars Larson, plus local news and weather 24 hours a day by just asking her to play KMED. 
Alexa streaming on KMED is made possible by Megan McPherson at Farmers Insurance. Father and Son Jewelry, Violets and Cream, and Pacific Healthcare Training. 106.3 KMED, 99.3 KCMD. This is the Bill Myers Show. Seven after seven, it is open phone time here. We'll uh, check some news and be right back after Hannity and take more of your phone calls and anything going on. Brad ends up uh, messaging me just a moment ago, and he says, Bill, your discussion about rebuilding old Volkswagens was great. I had no idea that you were such a gearhead back in the day. Well, it was kind of out of necessity, Brad. And I, I got better over the years, but when I was talking about getting those old 411 and 412s when I was a, a, a young DJ, part of it was that I needed a cheap car. And so, you know, you learned how to uh, to deal with it. That was the first fuel-injected car I uh, dealt with. But, uh, yeah, I would work on um, – <laughs> oh, this is kind of uh, – I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this now. But uh, back when I was a teenager, I would work on my father's 1969 Cadillac Coupe de Ville that I was driving for a while in um, in high school because he didn't want it anymore. He had a company car. And in those days, I would end up having more parts left over than I started with. I was the so-called good mechanic, but I got better. I got better. And I'm still a gearhead. I just don't have the time to put into it that I once did. And like I said, I, I've worked on the, uh, the, the, the Vanagon, my Vanagon diesel, the 40-year-old uh, diesel camper here. I've rebuilt that engine twice. I did a partial rebuild when I first got the van back in 1994, bought it from some hippie in Ashland, you know, that kind of thing, and uh, and then did a full rebuild on it, I think, uh, three or four years later after that. This must have been about 2003, 2004, and I haven't put a lot of miles on it uh, since those days, but the beauty of those vehicles, if you've ever uh, taken apart an old uh, Volkswagen diesel, which is the same, it's the same engine as a Rabbit, the Rabbit diesel, and it's kind of a uh, modified, just regular four-cylinder, is that it's so simple. It's simple mechanically. There are no electronics on this at all. You just go in there, you know, bore it out, put a new, you know, turn the crankshaft, put in oversized bearings and rings, and, you know, it's been good to go. It's been good to go for years. And... It's all mechanical, mechanical injection, no computers on that at all. So uh, if we have the EMP, except for the computer-controlled relay that would turn the glow plugs on, and I could bypass that manually, it's an urban assault vehicle when the EMP comes. If it comes, I'm ready for you. Brad, now I'll take you to the grocery store, assuming it's still open. (laughs) Got to have a little fun with that, right? 10 after 7. Hi, good morning. Who's this? Welcome. This is Bill. Good morning. Holly Morton, Republican Party. Hey, Holly. How are things? Uh, they're they're going to find. We're going to have a rally this Saturday at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it inside the office because it's supposed to be rainy and snowy and, and ugly. And uh, so we're going to have uh, John West will be speaking about these charter issues. And Dwayne Yunker will be speaking about the legislative legislative issues that we all need to take a look at. Okay. What time is that going to be at the Joe County Republican Party? Headquarters. At 10 o'clock and at noon, we're going to do a showing of the movie Letter to the American Church, which is a movie by Eric, uh, written by Eric Metaxas. Mm-hmm. Um, that should be very interesting, too. And then next month, we're going to have you uh, at our flag rally, which we're very excited about. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be doing that next month. I'll be uh, out there appearing for that. Now, uh, Saturday, now I can't go to the rally because uh, Saturday I'm going to be emceeing First Crush, and I'm hoping that everybody uh, com- comes to First Crush 
with the uh, Grants, Greater Grants Pass Rotary. That's going to be 4-7 to seven over at Josephine County Fairgrounds. Firstcrushtickets.com. You and Jim are going to go there, though, right? Yeah, Jim oh. and I are going to be there, and you can still get tickets. I know um, uh, Sandy's Candy or whatever it is over here. Yeah, still yeah Sandy's Candies yeah. Uh, has it in Grants Pass. But uh, anybody else, if you just want to go online and pick it up, get on the list, it's firstcrushtickets.com, and it's a great big fundraiser, Josephine County Food Bank and various other great charities in uh, in Josephine County that are supported by First Crush. And you get a chance to sample wines and great food and everything. It's a lot of fun. It really is. Okay? Yeah, we're really looking forward to that, too. All right. Hey, looking forward to it. And uh, hey, have a great rally, okay? See ya. Thank you very much. You're welcome.